0: What's up, ninjas? Chris Wachewski here.
1: And I'm Alex Cunningham.
0: So, today uh, we have a pretty exciting episode. Uh, we have one of, arguably, one of the best ninjas in the world with us. We have uh, Drew Dreschel.
1: Yeah, back to back NNL champion for the men. Uh, only person who can say that.
0: Yeah, it's uh, unbelievable talent. And most importantly, he's consistent. We don't really see consistency with a lot of ninjas. But we've seen that with Drew over the years, you know, all three seasons of NNL, he's placed in that top tier group. So I'm excited to hear what he has to say.
1: Exactly. And I always love talking to Drew. I actually got a chance to catch up with him before the world championships this year. And he was practicing on just a line of, you know, your cannonballs and nunchucks. And he did like eight or nine different approaches. And I went up to him and I'm like, what's what's going through your head? And he told me about how he always plans, you know, every possible path just in case something goes wrong. So he's a very, he has a very sharp mindset that might not be so apparent initially. So I'm really looking forward to talking to him. Yeah,
0: definitely. Yeah. So without further ado, let's, uh, let's bring in Drew Dreschel.
1: Well, this week we are blessed with the presence of the two time men's national ninja league champion and one of the. Very top ninjas in the whole world. Drew Dreschel, the real-life ninja. Thank you for coming on.
2: What's up, Alex? How's it going, Chris? Thanks for having me, guys.
1: Good, good. It's a pleasure
2: having you,
0: Drew. (laughs) So, Drew, you have to be one of the most consistent ninjas in the world. Uh, With the NNL, we have your track record here for finals. And you got second place the first season, only to lose to Jeff Britton who's amazing. He's going to be on the podcast uh, another time. You got first place the second season and you got first place the third season. Do you feel like there's, there's a lot of pressure on you because you know, you keep performing so well and there's kind of this high expectation for you now?
2: Uh, I feel like there's been pressure on me for like the past six years now. Once people actually realized who I am, kind of what I'm capable of and they've got their eye on me. I've, I've had pressure for the past six years at this point. It's, I guess it's expected or the pressure just kind of goes away once I'm competing, just because I'm, I'm so used to it, I guess, but I'm going to go out there. I'm going to do the best I can and what I've been training for years to do. So that's pretty much all I can hope for and ask for. And I've been lucky enough to be as consistent as I can be.
0: Yeah. And consistency. I, I mean, let's talk about that for a second because it's such a hard thing in this sport because you, you only get one shot. A lot of times, You're facing obstacles that, you know, may or may not cater to your skill set. And, you know, you could be feeling good. You could be feeling sick. How do you stay consistent? Uh, Because, like, you could – anybody just have a bad day and, you know, not do well. How do you you fight through that and stay consistent on these obstacles?
2: Uh, I think most of it's going to come down to your preparation. And talking specifically about the NNL. Um, there have been times where I've competed at some of the competitions and I was under the weather and I was feeling sick and it wasn't my best, uh, my best competition, but it is training. And that's definitely something that I'm going to take that experience with me moving forward is knowing how much can I push myself if I'm feeling sick and how much can I really get away with and what my body will do under these circumstances. And, um, it's these little experiences that I will keep with me for, I mean, as long as I'm competing. So that way I know myself and what I'm capable of Um, competing at my best. When I'm feeling good, I know what I'm capable of and competing under the weather. I know what I'm capable of. So when it comes to the finals, I feel like I am prepped and um, I I know myself and I know what my training, where it has brought me.
0: So obviously there's, there's tons of pressure. um, And there is that element of luck uh, with these obstacles how much of it do you think is, you know, prep versus luck? Like, do you think it's like a 50-50 split? Do you think it's, you know, 80-20? Like, where do you draw the line between, like, you know, preparing for these tough obstacles and sometimes just getting lucky?
2: So I think uh, preparation can be split into two different uh, attributes. There's, like, the physical um, preparation, which is your training, and then there's mental preparation, Now, within those two, the physical aspect and the mental aspect of doing obstacles or doing courses, that's when I would say it's about 80-20, and it's 80% mental and 20% physical. And I say this because there's so many obstacles that whether you can do it, it, you can be the strongest guy in the world and not know how to do any of these obstacles, and I would say you get through maybe 20% of them if you're lucky. Um, But if you are one of the smartest people in the world you don't have to have nearly as much strength to get through 80% of these obstacles. And those numbers, obviously, depending on what obstacle we're talking about, but I'm speaking as a generic across the board, any obstacle at random, 80% mental uh, and that's mental preparation, thinking about what you want to do. How do you be efficient? How do you get through this saving the most amount of energy? How do you get through this without using all of your energy? These are things that most people don't take into consideration. And I think your mental game is way more important than your physical, uh, physical
0: game.
1: So we took a little poll around the quote-unquote office um, before we came on, and we wanted to know if you had to pick one person, who would you pick as the top ninja in the world? And a lot of them picked you, so I wanted to get your opinion. If you couldn't pick yourself, who do you think you would put at the very top?
2: See, that's a that's a hard question and before I say my answer, I think I think most people consider me or pick me in something like that because I do competitions all over the world. I've done sasuke, uh Indonesia, I've been to Malaysia, I've gone to Australia. So I, I do travel the globe doing these competitions. And there aren't very many people out there who are traveling as much as I do or throwing up consistent top three, two or one places at these these other TV shows, these other competitions worldwide, um, but there are plenty of ninjas who I consider to be at the top of their game. Where <clears throat> if they were to travel and do these competitions that I'm doing, then they would be up there right with me, doing the same things that I'm doing. Um, you got to say Joe Marowski is definitely one of the top ninjas. Um, Adam Rail is definitely growing and becoming one of these these top ninja athletes he has a great solid athletic background and he's learning how to use his body more and more efficiently by the day, like as the day goes on, we have so many ninjas who have the possibility to be considered the, the best or one of the best in the world. The only difference is they haven't ventured out into the world.
0: Yeah. I have two questions to follow up with that. One, how do you do it? How, how do you go to all these comps? How do you afford to travel to all these different areas? And Two, why aren't other ninjas doing it?
2: Um, I don't I, I can't answer the why they're not. Maybe they don't have the same I don't I, I can't say that maybe they don't have the same passion, but this is definitely something that I, I do as my my entire life. Like honestly, if I'm not good at ninja by now, I should find a new career because it's literally the only thing I do. I I travel around, I build obstacles, I I go to all the cities, I support my friends. All my friends are ninja, all my clothes are ninja. Everything I think or want to do or plan is ninja warrior related. Um, I am lucky enough to be uh, invited back to Sasuke uh, the past several years because of my performances. Um, And then I I feel like I'm definitely a people person. So if I get a chance to meet somebody new or talk to someone new... Uh, especially someone international that I want to get as much information about them and their culture as possible. And I feel like that's very welcoming to them. So, uh, last year, the owners of Ninja Academy, um, Mark and Dave Ravi, they invited me out to their Ninja league, their competition. Um, and I told them that money was going to be kind of tight, but they said they would work something out. Um, so what i did was i i did a couple of workshops for uh, workshops for them i taught a bunch of clinics and i did like meet and greets and i did everything i could to kind of help them pay for my travel out there and then make it worthwhile for me being out there um so i think what my advantage is that because this is all i do and this is um this is my life that i can afford to make these decisions knowing that I don't have to take time off work or I don't have to worry about my job when I leave. Cause my job is wherever I go. My job is Ninja and then just taking over the world. So I guess I'm taking over the world. I'm just <laughs> going to keep traveling around and hopefully meeting cool people and doing cool things and trying to spread as much of my experience as possible. And while I'm traveling, I, it's going to consistent, it's going to consistently um, help me improve myself and learn from more awesome people in which turn I, I take that information and I give it back to the next person. So I'm just going to keep snowballing in the right direction, hopefully, and keep getting smarter and stronger and um, keep passing on as much information as I can.
1: So you meant, I've heard you mention that ninja is your life a couple times. And actually, we, the world was first introduced to Drew Dreschel through your parkour career uh, back on Jump City, Seattle which Correct. I was a huge fan of. I am just wanted to throw that out there. Um, <laughs> what made you go from parkour to full-time ninja?
2: Um, the easy answer is the community um, and the challenge for myself. But the long answer is I was doing parkour and trying to do um, – I, I always, even since I was a little kid, I've always wanted to be – uh, some sort of athlete, and I wanted to see a future in maybe baseball, and then possibly I saw a future in football, and then I wanted to get into stunts and doing like acrobatics, maybe circus Olay stuff. Like there was always something I wanted to do physically, athletic, to make my life and career out of. And doing parkour and free running and, and then doing Jump City Seattle, I was kind of getting into stunts at the time and thinking about possibly moving out to LA or to somewhere in New York, maybe to somewhere where I can kick off my career in stunts and be becoming a stunt actor. I've always wanted to be like a Vin Diesel um, sort of guy where I would do my own stunts and be on TV. But after Jump City had aired, um, I actually had gotten a phone call and it was Flip and I both I had gotten a phone call from some of the producers Um asking if we wanted to try out for american ninja warrior now i'm not sure about flip but i had never heard of it before and i wasn't familiar with what ninja warrior was so i asked them what it was and got some information they told me it was an obstacle course and i'd have to fly out to la in about four weeks and just you know run a course on venice beach so i decided that it would be cool i go to la meet some friends hang out with excuse me hang out with tempest for a little bit and um That was pretty much my plan. I had no idea that it was going to turn into what it did. I had no idea that I would be where I am today. And after running the course, like, I I honestly don't remember my first run. I blacked out. I remember Jake Smith sitting on the bleachers with me trying to show me my run through his camera. And I don't remember my run. But I remember a little bit at finals, I remember falling and thinking, like, this was really cool. How did I get so lucky to make it so far? Because I don't know what I'm doing here. And then going through boot camp and then going to Japan, like the whole experience and hanging out with everybody and everybody was so welcoming that it was, it was very unique. And that wasn't what I was used to since I grew up doing team sports. And within team sports, it was always very competitive against whoever you're going against. But within Ninja, it's really competitive against the course and everyone is working with each other to take down the course, which I think is really cool and unique. And that's definitely something that I enjoyed when it comes to sports. And you really see that these days and especially through the show when that's when millions of people are, uh, they're exposed to a little bit of the culture that they may not understand that th- this ninja community is a tight-knit community. We're all pushing each other. We're all helping each other, sharing our our training secrets and what we do to become stronger and better and smarter. And that's not something that you see when it comes to other uh, other sports, especially team sports. That's kind of what got me like, involved with the sport was how addicting it was to, for me to challenge myself. But at the same time, it was so easy for me to progress so quickly because everyone else is looking to help everyone else.
0: Yeah. And I want to touch on the, the community aspect uh, because you have a unique role here. You are one of the best athletes in the world and you're growing the sport by traveling to all these different comps, but you also have other roles in the community and growing it as well. You own the, uh, the New Era Ninja Academy and the Real Life Ninja Academy, and mm-hmm. you have a spot on the NNL board. What's it like for you to be able to grow it from the administrative perspective? Because that, That's a totally different role than growing it as an athlete.
2: It is, and I honestly – I try to give my input as much as I can because um, I, I really can't give any sort of professional standpoint. Like my experience, honestly um, – I should say my expertise – Just comes from my experience. And I just, I do have a lot of experience. Um, we talked about me traveling all over the world. So I get to see a bunch of different ideas and cultures and ninja in different countries. Um, and because of that, I get to play on different courses and I get to see all these different obstacles. And I have lots of competition experience. I've got lots of building and rigging experience. I've got lots of experience with different types of courses and different formats. So I've got a lot of uh, a lot of knowledge within Ninja that's not pertaining strictly to uh, what we're used to here in, in the United States. But even then, like even within uh, our country, I do travel around quite a bit. So I see all these different things that most people only see like, one or two, it's its really hard to explain. Um, people may see only side A of, of, of a square as where I can see all six sides of the square or at least five of the sides. And I can help use my experience to broaden everyone else's view when it comes to certain topics, whether it's uh, rules of a course or a format of a course or course design. Um, these are things that I can use my experience that I have a lot of to help as much as I can other people. Um, who aren't as lucky lucky to travel or see as much as I do. So I kind of give as much as I can back. I guess that's kind of what most of this comes down to is I have a lot of knowledge and experience that I just try to pass on.
0: Yeah. Um, And I think with all of that knowledge and experience, uh, I feel like you in particular kind of have a good sense of where the sport is headed because you have experienced so many different events and you've been all over the world and you can kind of see the growth firsthand. Where do you think, this is headed. Where is Ninja going in the next three to five years?
2: Obviously, this is all just my opinion, and I don't have any actual knowledge. I have to start by saying that. <clears throat> but I've seen it blow up. I mean, if Chris, you were with me in season three, <laughs> you were. Actually I was. The, it was small. Were, <laughs> I had
0: to explain to people what Ninja was. They were like, "Is that wipeout?"
2: <laughs> and that's and that's where we came from. We came from a time where if you were to ask ten people what American Ninja Warrior was you'd probably have maybe one or two who knew what you were talking about. And nowadays, if you were to ask 10 people about American Ninja Warrior, uh, nine out of the 10 would say, yeah, you know that little girl that won it all, right? So, <laughs> I, <laughs> everybody least. knows that girl that won the whole thing. <laughs> yep. you, so, you took the joke before I could. But, but regardless of what, they're, what they know about it, they know about it. And that's the thing. Like People know American Ninja Warrior, and they know that it's not Wipeout because – they will if you say wipeout they're like no no not like that it's it's real athletes and that's exciting to me because we always used to get mistaken for wipeout athletes <laughs> but <laughs> so it's come from a time where only 20% or 10% of the population knew what it was to almost 90% of the population knows some form of american ninja warrior so it's growing and it's growing all in a positive way um there are uh, lots of different tv shows and stations out there that Kids and their parents can't sit down and watch together and and be entertained at least, but now like that's a family affair so it's something that everybody enjoys something that kids enjoy parents enjoy and want to try out for kids want to try out for we've got a kid ninja warrior that's been announced and coming out it's popping up in different countries throughout the world it's growing at an exponential rate and i would not be surprised if by 2028 we have some form of ninja in the olympics whether it's a team ninja warrior style where it's just strictly race Or if it's a American Ninja Warrior or Ninja Warrior Sasuke style where it's a set of four courses that are extremely difficult and progressively getting harder as you move on. And we see who can do it and who can do it in the fastest time. Um, I I honestly think it would be more like a Team Ninja style or more of like an All-Stars challenge where we have specific obstacles and we just go as big and bad on these obstacles as we can. Who can do... Up and down a salmon ladder of 15 rungs, who can go to the top and to the bottom the most amount of times? Something very easy to to regulate and actually uh, manage. I definitely see some form of ninja within the the professional Olympics within the next 10 years.
0: What do you think is gonna? What what will it take to go from where ninja is at now to to in the Olympics? Uh, Because it's my understanding uh, it needs to be in like X number of countries, and and there's a lot that goes into getting uh, sport into the Olympics. Like how how does ninja get there? See, and that's
2: that's something that I'm not familiar with. I don't know stuff like that, but um, I have spoken with a couple different people on this topic because this is something that's very interesting. This is something that a lot of people would like to see. Uh, we just need to get the right people who want to see this, but I believe you are along the right lines. It needs to be in a certain amount of countries. And right now I think Ninja warriors in 30 something plus countries and my number could be wrong. I just, I'm pretty sure that's like the last thing I heard. Um, and it is still constantly growing. So it's not just a certain amount of countries, but I think it has to be within a certain amount of certain countries. Um, certain countries who have some sort of political standpoint to make the decision of putting it within the Olympics. I don't think we're too far off, especially since, like, I think 2020 is already done and planned. 2024 is already in the planning and in the works, which is why I say 2028. I'm thinking within the next couple of years, we'll hear something about Ninja eventually becoming part of the 2028 Olympics. And I would, I would love to see it. Just, unfortunately, I'll be, uh, I'll be a little bit too old at that time to compete. So unless they have a senior division, I'll just get to see it grow, which I'm okay with.
1: You know, I think you're spot on with the growth of the sport, and I think you have a very unique, unique vantage point in terms of being a gym owner, being a board member, being an athlete. What specifically are your goals, your individual tasks that you want to do to help grow the sport as far as it can go?
2: I don't think I need to specifically do anything to help it grow. It's going to grow on its own. What I can do to help it, along its way and keep it positive is to make sure that the gyms that I'm opening are still safe. And the number one priority is priority is the safety of the kids. If they're having safe, they will have fun. If they're having fun, they will get stronger. So I, I prioritize safety over everything. Kids are going to do this, whether we want them to or not, they're going to be playing ninja. And I mean, how many times have you seen pictures or seen parents or talk to parents where their kids do the spider jump in the hallway or they jump off the couch or they build salmon ladders in the basement or backyard. Like kids are going to do this anyway. So my goal is to open facilities where kids can not only train the things they want to train and become their idols and their role models that they look up to, but they have a safe controlled environment to do it at with proper staff who can teach them how to do it without falling so many times. I, I definitely think falling is a part of ninja no one will ever tell me that it's not everyone's going to fall. And that's how you learn, but there are ways to do it safely so that when you do fall, you're not getting hurt or injured. So my goal personally is to open facilities for kids to train at, And then I want to help push these athletes who want to push themselves. So I right now I'm working specifically with my team kids um, and they're like the best of the best that I've seen. And they're going, a lot of them are going to be at the kids in Warrior thing. And I'm really excited to see how they do, but I want to work with people who want, who had my same goals as a kid who want to push themselves and see what they're capable of and push their limits uh, athletically. So these, that's kind of my goal is facilities for everyone. And then specifically, I want to coach these kids to, to their full potential. You
0: you talked about basically training, uh, training the kids, training the future generation, but I've listened to a lot of your other stuff. I've read your men's health article and uh, you typically refuse to call it training. You, you refer to it as playing, right? It is
2: playing. It is playing. Um, so what so,
0: well, what is the difference between between training and playing for you?
2: Um, are you talking about me or if I'm working with somebody else? Either is or. Is there, is there okay. a different
0: answer for, uh, for two different I, people?
2: I think so. And I, and I say I think so because I haven't really thought about this, but I'll tell you my, my answers right now. For me – Training is a little bit of everything. Training is cutting back your diet, watching your weight, a specific goal or purpose. So if I'm training for Sasuke, I'm not worried about stage one. I'm not worried about stage two. I'm worried about stage three, specifically crazy cliffhanger and vertical limit. So I'm going to put my heart and soul for a certain time period within uh, a month, two, three months out of whenever I'm gonna compete into doing these specific tasks. Now, when it comes to training for ninja, I don't train for ninja. I play. And that's going to be better for me overall than just training, let's say, I'm going to do rope today. I'm going to do nunchucks tomorrow. I'm going to do cliffhanger today. So being overall and that like being an overall athlete and doing ninja or getting ready for just ninja in general, um, I think it's better to play. I think it's better to have fun with what you do. Because if you go into something with a a specific task or a goal, like when I go in to train for Sasuke – and I'm doing only vertical limit and only cliffhanger, I'm maybe going to get an hour out of my hands. And that's it, because then my fingers start hurting, and then I need to be careful not to uh, pull any tendons again or or cause any serious damage to my fingers, because I'm going hard, I'm pushing my body, and I can't do it more than an hour. Not if I'm going to do it for a couple days in a row or a couple days throughout the week. However, when it comes to training or playing for ninja overall, I can use all parts of my body and I can last seven, eight, nine hours throughout the day. And I'm having fun with what I'm doing and I'm not going all out and going so hard. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it, it does make sense. Uh, obviously, there's a you know big difference between coming in the gym and just kind of like messing around on stuff versus coming in and being super regimented.
2: Okay, okay. So if I, if I were to walk in the gym today and I'm like, I, I'm feeling like I need to move, right? So I'll walk in the gym and I will start just hanging on a bar. That's usually how I start, just hanging on a bar, swinging around, getting warmed up, and then I'll, maybe I'll see something I want to do. Like, oh, let well, me go to that ring, and I'll start challenging myself. I'll start giving myself these challenges, um, but starting little and getting bigger, and maybe I'll take that challenge to the next level. It's like, oh, I can make that lache to that ring, and can I go from that ring to that cliffhanger? And then I'll sit there and I'll play on that for 45 minutes until I finally get it. And then it's, oh, what if I go cliffhanger? Um, and then I lache sideways 180 to landing on that barrel. And then I'll just try to link it. So it's almost like playing a big game of add-on with myself that I start doing all these different types of movements and it all started with just one challenge and it's everything that I want to do. At no point do I ever feel like, man, this is, this is, this is just tedious. This is boring. I don't want to do this because at any point that I feel like I'm bored, I can just do something else. I get to just change my line to a different direction. Oh, if my hands are starting to hurt, well, then let's throw in some balance. Like, I'm not going in there with a specific purpose. Therefore, I don't ever feel like I'm failing at anything because I'm just going in there to play and move around and get used to doing different things. If that helps explain anything a little differently.
0: Yeah, I I think it's really good. Um, I I do have a follow-up, though. That's fine. Do you think like it sounds like when you play you're you're hanging out in the gym for a while you're you're there for a long amount of time like you're you're kind of just moving from one thing to the next kind of like as it feels comfortable I kind of picture like a rock climber in a gym who's basically projecting. They're doing something really hard and then they're hanging out and then finding the next hard route to do. Do you think this style is can, like works for everybody? Because I know not a lot of people, like there's people that are working, there's people that don't have as much time to train. Can somebody who you know works at nine to five go in and utilize this playing style uh, to still get as good as you are?
2: Um, I'm going to say no, but with the follow-up that you don't have to go to a gym to play around. If you want to just play around and use your own creativity, there's, there's playgrounds out there. There are shopping, cart, uh, shopping cart racks at Walmart. Like <laughs> you, you can, you can play around pretty much wherever you go. And that's kind of how I started before I had a gym, before I was doing anything in a gym, before I considered myself any sort of athlete, a uh, professional athlete, at least I would, I would find these challenges and, Back in the parkour days, I would just play around, and that's all I did. So I, I think I've developed a mentality that is very well-suited for me and how I train. And a lot of people don't have the same mentality. A lot of people um, probably need a little bit more guidance. And I have noticed uh, throughout the years of teaching and coaching that creativity and imagination is its very, uh, it's very uncommon. I'll tell people every once in a while, I'll tell my, my students, adult and kid alike, like, go play. Like, go go play add-on, and they'll have to explain what add-on is. And then I ex- after I explain it, it's like, okay, just create your own course. And they honestly sit there, and they just struggle with coming up being unique and different. So I definitely feel that I have a little bit of an advantage there when it comes to thinking of cool and fun things to do. So it's very easy for me to do. Um, but I feel like it's important for other people to learn how to do that as well. So they don't have to go to a gym. Like if you're at home right now, Chris or, or Alex, and you guys wanted to do anything, if you felt like you needed to move, do you have anything in your house that you can hang on? Do you have anywhere around you or around your house or around your community that you can just go jump or move?
1: I mean, I have a pull up bar and a little playground at the end of my street. So I, I try so, to utilize it as much as possible.
2: And, and when was the last time that you just walked to that playground or started jumping around?
1: Like a day or two ago. That's
2: that's really good. And that's actually a very surprising answer because typically most people don't have anything like that or they don't know about it and they don't ever utilize it. And I think it's it's good to just go play and have fun. But Chris, to answer you, I don't think it is for everybody. And I think there are times where people may need a little more guidance until they get comfortable with their limitations to be creative. I think it's very hard to be creative if you don't know what you can or cannot do. And if you don't know all these cool things that your body is capable of or all these cool things that you are capable of doing. Um, and that's probably where going to a – Movement Lab or Real Life Ninja Academy is very helpful because then you hang out with awesome people who do awesome things.
0: And so I was going to ask, with this with the, the, the playing tra- training style, when somebody goes to a class at Real Life Ninja, are, are they going to be playing or are they going to be training? What, what format do you have for your classes over there?
2: So for the adults, it's uh, very similar to an open gym, but I will never call it an open gym. I have certain obstacles that are on for the night that are properly matted. And they, uh, if it's your first, second, or third time to get familiar with the environment, to get familiar with people so that you don't walk in there, feel like you're all alone. I will always pair them up with a coach. So new people will always be with a coach and always be with someone who knows the environment and they'll take you around and they'll show you how to do this obstacle and how to have fun with it. But it's very free. It's, it's not strict. If you want to spend the entire hour and a half at the pegboard because you really are enjoying it, I'm not going to tell you, no, like, you're there to have fun you're there to enjoy yourself and if you want to get a workout that's a huge bonus and you will get stronger and smarter by doing so but i want to make sure that everyone's there having fun so it's very much similar to a um to the playing aspect uh but when it comes to the kids that's a little different because i'm sure you understand kids don't have that one track mind where they can just go in and, and be safe i mean when i say one track mind i mean They want to go and do everything all at once, and they're going to be all over the place, and it's just too chaotic and too crazy to have 28 kids running around in such a small space where, to be honest, the obstacles are dangerous. We can't say they're not. If you don't know what you're doing and you do them improperly, they're dangerous to you and everyone around you. So we have a very more structured class for kids where every week there will be different obstacles they get to play on. And it, they're only going to be at a station for maybe 8 to 10 minutes um, playing on each of these obstacles. So it's very fast-paced. They get a chance to touch everything and play on everything. After a couple weeks, kind of touch and feel what the like what the kids are enjoying. And uh, they tell us what their favorite obstacles are. And once we hear back from them, then we set up a course during week 5 or 6. And they get to play on all their favorite obstacles again, but as a course format. So it's still encouraging them. To test a bunch of stuff, and they get to play on the things that they want to play on, what they really enjoy, and they're kind of learning how to be progressive with each of the obstacles. But that comes down to coaches, which is that's a whole nother subject. Having the coaches uh, teach the kids how to be progressive with each obstacle, so that even if little Jimmy is really struggling at a pegboard, but then you have uh, jamie over here is crushing it jimmy can feel challenged doing a pegboard and jamie can let's see how many times she can make 15 moves or see how quickly she can do it which they're both being challenged but on totally different levels that way no one kid is ever feeling like he's left behind does that make sense and that's something that's very very important when it comes to dealing with kids is you want them to have fun they are there playing and i think if you keep it fast paced it still seems like it's playing for them but we are controlling um we're controlling their safety so they're not just running around all over the place
1: yeah you're exactly right and i'm glad you brought this idea of playing up because i've had the opportunity to watch you both in practice and in competition and i've always viewed you as a very methodical ninja you always have a very calculated approach to obstacles. So how do you balance the idea of playing and the idea of calculating the best route on an obstacle being more methodical?
2: So I definitely think that they're completely separate. Um when it comes to like I go out there and I, I'm playing, I'm having fun on the course, but at the same time, I before I even step foot onto any sort of course, I want to know exactly what I want to do, where I want to step, where I want to put my hand, which hand do I want to lead with on a certain obstacle. And I will, I'll think about it over and over and over. And I will mentally run through the course, visualize myself running through the course, which is becoming more and more common, which is helping more and more people. And I think it's fantastic. That's how you're going to see uh, humans, at, humans evolve as a species. And how we're going to get stronger and get better is because we're being smarter with the way we move. We're not necessarily getting significantly stronger. I'm not saying we're not getting stronger, but not to the point where, if we look at stage, let's say two or three from four seasons ago, most of us are going to laugh at that. And it's not because most of us have gotten five times stronger. It's because we've gotten five times smarter. We understand what switch grip is. We understand how to think about the course before we step out there. We know how to move certain ways that make obstacles now easy. If we take the wing nuts for example, last year, the wing nuts were brand new. No one has seen them before. And a lot of people really struggled because it's not something that people had an understanding of where to put their where to put their body or how to move or what to do and how to swing. Now everyone's had a chance to play on wing nuts. Everyone understands the motion that your body should be doing and how to catch it and what to release. So wing nuts are no longer hard. Is it because people got stronger? I don't think so. The wing nuts don't really require strength. They require you to hold on. It's people got a better understanding of the technique. And there's dozens of obstacles where people got a better better understanding of the technique. Um, and I think that's just, it's something that we will constantly see moving forward is the people who can figure this out sooner are the ones who are going to excel. And I think that I'm one of the lucky ones that I, I sit back and I ask questions and I work backwards where if someone's having an issue with something, I will ask, why are they struggling? Uh, what's, what's the issue? How did this happen? What went wrong? How do I fix it? And I'll just ask myself these questions, and I'll answer my own questions. Um, There are – I can't give an example. So I was going to give a really good example of an obstacle that gave people a lot of trouble. However, the episode hasn't aired yet, so I can't talk about it. Can you give me an example of an obstacle that's given people trouble this year that's brand new that's already been shown? Did they show tuning forks yet?
1: Yeah, they showed tuning
2: forks. Okay, Let's let's talk about the tuning forks, unless you had one, Chris. No, that's fine. Cool. So I'm watching the tuning forks and I saw like three or four people in a row fall on the tuning forks. Now this isn't on the show. This is like being there. So I don't know who they, I haven't seen that episode. I don't know who they've shown or not, but I was noticing that almost every single person that was falling on the tuning forks. And I mean like 99% of them after they took their second step, they knew where their third wanted to be, but they already started looking at the platform and they weren't looking down. So I know That anyone who wants to do the tuning forks, and if I'm ever going to go on the tuning forks, and I'll never know because I didn't get a chance to do them. But if I was going to do the tuning forks, don't look up. Like, you know the mat's going to be coming. You know the pad's going to be coming. That's common sense. You keep moving forward, you'll eventually be fine, correct? But everyone kept taking their eyes off of where they were stepping, which they should know that even after stepping on the first one of the three, there's three sets of two after you stepped on the first one of each of the three steps, the second one was probably not going to be where you think it is because it's going to move. And if you go back and watch the replay, guarantee you they're all looking forward. They're not looking down at their feet and their feet just completely miss. And that's something that I was able to figure out after like the third or fourth runner falling on it. And I'm curious as how many people out there realize this.
0: That's uh that's some really impressive insight to be able to notice, you know, that little detail um, and to figure it out, you know, within just a few runners. Uh, well, it, I remember kinda... being
2: out there in the the like the warm up area, and they had a monitor for the contestants to watch. I say contestants, um, and I was telling people, like, just please look down at your feet. That won't be an issue. And people would say, oh, it's moving, and well, of course it's moving. That's how it's designed to go. Um, like it's designed to move, and people are arguing. I'm like, I'm not going to sit there and argue. Like, it's just my opinion, and I get that. But typically when it comes to movement, I I feel like it's a good idea to listen to someone who has gotten, I don't know, who's proven their success or proven that maybe I know what I'm talking about. Um, But I'm not going to argue with anybody. And if they're telling me that that's not the reason, then be my guest and prove me wrong. That's fine. But I'm telling you that if you're not looking at your feet, how are you going to guess at where it's going to move to? And slow-mo uh the slow-mo runs and they would replay and they would show slow-mo and you would see that as soon as they took their second step and they knew they were taking their third and they anticipated the fourth would be there they were already looking up and it was just funny to me that people were not listening to my advice and they continued to just continue continuously fell well and i, I could think do nothing at that point but just laugh a little bit
0: I think it's interesting. Um, you talk about uh, listening to advice and stuff. And uh, one of the things that you do is you will run the course with headphones on because you don't want to listen to other people shouting from the crowd. And I, I think that's a fair, a fair thing to do. I, I think not as many people know about you. But can you give us a little more insight into you know running with the headphones on and why sure. you want to block out that noise?
2: We had just talked about um, recently that I like to plan everything I want to do before. All uh, right. So I go into the course with a plan. And if I'm doing my plan and someone else tries to tell me what to do as far as rushing my time or gets me out of my rhythm, it's going to throw everything off. If I'm expected to get to a certain point by a certain time and I get there earlier, I know I can take more of a rest. And that's my chance to take more of a rest. Or if I get there to, if I get to a certain point too late, I know that I shouldn't rest. I need to move. So people telling me to hurry up or slow down is—it's really going to mess with me. Like, because it's—it's not their. Like they they don't know what I want to do. They don't know where I want to be at a certain point. And I have checkpoints throughout the course that I want to hit uh, to keep on pace. Either if I'm going, hopefully for the fastest time, um, or if I'm going just to clear. And people don't know if I'm going for time or if i'm going to clear or if i'm just trying to get to a certain point by a certain time to make sure i move on like people in the crowd don't understand that so why would i want to listen to them
0: do you ever think that you potentially miss any good insight or info from from the crowd Do do you ever feel like you know having headphones on you miss like a key thing that you wish you knew
2: um could you give an example that's something that i could miss because i don't think so what is uh, what is the general public in the crowd going to know that I'm not going to understand or have a chance to think about that I would want to change in the middle of my run?
0: I, I, uh, I'm going to use uh, my run in Philadelphia qualifiers or Philadelphia finals as an example. Uh, I had a tough obstacle with the rolling thunder. You made it look easy. It was tough for me. And uh, I knew that it was going to be a challenge to get through it. So uh, Henry Farrar and he's, big friend big ninja of mine we -hmm. train together a lot and i told henry he's got this loud booming voice i'm like henry Mm -hmm. i'm just going to turn my head down i'm going to start turning that wheel you shout to me when i'm done and i use that to get through the obstacle much faster than i did the previous night because i was able to just focus on turning and moving and i knew when i was complete
2: excellent now what happens if you couldn't hear henry what happens if what happens I if Henry, ran
0: right <laughs> into the end of the track?
2: <laughs> what happens if, for some reason, Henry wasn't on the sideline? they wouldn't let him through? What happens if you couldn't hear him over the crowd? What happens if he, maybe he wasn't paying attention or he told you to stop too early, or maybe he didn't tell you to stop enough? And that, these are questions that I'm not judging your decision. I think it's really smart. I think that's huge. Um, would you like to hear what I did for Rolling Thunder?
0: Yeah, I would actually I'd love to hear your insight.: I
2: watched several people go on Rolling Thunder. And I counted how many hand movements they did. Not necessarily rotations, but how many, movements did they, how many different slots did they touch? And I counted. And it was an average between 21 and 25. So I made sure to get to 22. I took a peek down. Didn't like my dismount. So I took two or three more moves, and I dismounted right away. I knew how many moves I would have to take on Rolling Thunder. And I gave two or three extra, give or take, um, to account for whether it wasn't set in the right spot. Or, to, or it was my first time on it, so I didn't know how I was going to feel. Um, or if I wasn't comfortable with the dismount, knowing how heavy it looked and how it was, the wheel was actually swinging people as opposed to you trying to swing on it. So I knew how many moves I had to do before I went into it. So instead of just going and having to peek or look or take a, like, take a guess, I knew how many I wanted to do. And I just kept counting and kept moving. That way, um, let's say if you were waiting for someone else, you could end up going too much or not enough, or you're just, you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting as where I knew exactly how many I wanted to take. So when I hit 21 and I moved on 22 where I wanted to be, I was able to relax, relax my core, relax my arms. Like I was, I was where I wanted to be and I felt relaxed and I noticed, okay, I'm not liking this lache. tough it up, move two more times, and it's easy dismount. So knowing exactly where I want to be and what I want to do is its all part of my game plan, I guess. It's how I think it speaks. I prep mentally.
0: I think it speaks words about uh, your comfort level on obstacle. I, I know personally when I, w- when I was on there, I was not able to count, <laughs> count out rotations. <laughs> I was like, I just need to keep moving and get this thing done. Uh, you can tell how relaxed you are if you're counting hand placements as you're going. And that's like the fifth obstacle. I'm, I personally would probably forget by the fifth obstacle that I would, should be counting hand placements.
2: <laughs> I, I, I feel like it's, I don't know if you heard the podcast I did with Matter Akbar, but I definitely think that the main topic of that podcast is I look at that as almost my super, my superpower when it comes to being a ninja is that I have the ability to think about a lot of things at once. And I understand for a lot of people thinking and moving is very difficult. So that's one of the first things I try to teach anyone who wants to be uh, a professional ninja or go on the show or up their game is you got to learn how to think in the moment, how to relax and move. Like, it's really hard to relax and move and then think on top of that. It's challenging.
1: There's one obstacle in particular I want to ask you about in terms of this idea of strategizing each obstacle beforehand, and that's from this past season's world championship at ninja Quest. Mm-hmm. The second obstacle of the first stage was called Bazooka Go, and it's, for the people that haven't had the chance to see this yet, it's running down this really long trampoline. The idea <laughs> was you have to jump up to this bar, and you can get a PVC pipe, slide it down the track, and dismount to the platform. You skipped the PVC pipe entirely, <laughs> jumped all the way across, somersault, landed on your back on the platform, raced off to the next obstacle. You ended up with the fastest time by about eight seconds, I think. You ended up clearing with about 35 seconds left. So time was not an issue at all. What factored into your decision to go for that skip?
2: Um, I look at it as a, first of all, risk versus reward. Um, The risk of something like that, like the risk of something can go wrong, was much more minimal to the risk of doing the obstacle like it's supposed to be done. Uh, Jumping off a trampoline, clearing a gap, and landing on a mat seems way easier for me and a lot less moves where something could technically go wrong than jumping up to a bar and then having to do all these other hand motions and then get off the bar. Like, there's a lot more involved. Uh, There's more movements where something could go wrong. And I hadn't made that decision until I watched Ethan Swanson. He was the first one to do it and I know Ethan, and I've I've trained with Ethan a little bit, and I'm also very, very familiar with what I'm capable of on a trampoline and flips and awareness, and I watched him do it, and he made it look so easy, and I'm not going to say that anything he can do, I can do, but watching him move, I was able to, uh, I was able to put myself in his shoes. I was able to watch him hit the trampoline, watch his body fly through the air, watch where he ended up, and then how effortlessly it looked. It took almost nothing other than maybe possibly knocking the wind out of him. He made it look easy and it was quicker and it was effortless. So I decided that's what I was going to do.
0: Obviously, you spend a lot of time analyzing different obstacles, trying to figure out what's the easiest path. Uh, You really, your focus is very strongly on the obstacles are there other aspects of competition prep that you focus on besides the obstacles? Is there like a certain diet that you do? Is there a certain, you know, sleep pattern? Is there like a pregame ritual where you're playing like League of legends beforehand to get your mind <laughs> relaxed? Like, like, what do you do before the comp to prep?
2: Someone's asked me this recently. I honestly don't have any superstitions. I don't have any like real prep. I would say typically on competition days, I don't do it on purpose, I just, I don't eat a lot, I think I get nervous, so I don't, I can't eat when I'm nervous, and then after I compete, my body's really hot and overheated, so I can't eat, even after I compete, so I'll go probably most of the day without any food, and that's just, that's just a byproduct of me competing, it has nothing to do with me, like, oh, I'm gonna lose weight, I'm gonna be late, I just, I can't eat, um, but I, I think it depends on the competition as where if it's an NNL, like don't take this the wrong way, but it's just for fun. I'm going out there to have fun. I'm going out there to challenge myself and meet cool people and do cool things. So I'm not going to take it too seriously as where I'm going to train months for it. Like the show is a million dollars if you win. That's definitely something I want to train for. Sasuke is total victory and first American to win. Like that's something I'm going to train months for. So NNL is it's for fun. I look at that as a good way to challenge myself and improve myself as an athlete and learn and, if anything, use that as a a stepping stone or a learning curve or training tool for bigger competitions that are literally life-changing. But I do like listening to music when I run because, again, I get to be in my zone, have a little fun out there, remind myself constantly that... I I don't know there's different messages depending on the song but it's either go out there and have fun or it's hey this is what you trained for don't screw it up (laughs) Um, it depends uh, on kind of what's going on so if it's a competition that has multiple stages something I tell myself is if you look good you feel good you feel good you do good so before I compete in bigger ones like before I go to Sasuke or the tv show or NNL finals I even think "I, I got a haircut because get a good hair, get a good, get a new haircut, you feel good, right? You look good, you feel good, you feel confident, you do good. If I run stage one, the fastest time, everything goes according to plan, I'm coming out of stage one with such a confidence in my ability, and that confidence is going to carry over to stage two. And it's not only going to carry over to stage two, but I'm going to be the last person to run onto. I'm going to know what I have to do, know what I have to beat, know where the, the, the bar is set. And with that extra confidence, I'm going to feel better about running stage two. And hopefully it carries over to three. So it all starts in stage one, but it all starts with the haircut going into stage one.
0: I think that's a, that's super awesome insight. I'm sure the listeners are going to be super stoked to hear, you know, how Drew prepares and what Drew does training wise. <laughs> uh, I I really think that's why people are going to be, be tuning in is to figure out, you know, all Drew's secrets. <laughs> so for the other, you know, for everybody else that wants to, you know, follow up on you and you know, see what all the stuff that you're doing, uh, where can where can people, you know, uh, find Drew Dreschel? Where can they see what you're doing on the reg? I mean I'm, they... I'm
2: prominently on Instagram. I mean some of my stuff will go to Facebook or Twitter, but I'm on Instagram. Find me at Real Life Ninja on Instagram, one word.
0: And if people wanted to go check out the gym and see this playing training style, uh, where can they find that information?
2: uh hop on google type in new era ninjas we're here in hamden connecticut or you can type in real life ninja academy and that's in windsor connecticut with a couple more locations opening soon
0: cool and and is there anything else I, that you yeah want
2: to may i may i if anyone out there i'm looking to franchise and i need staff i need investors i need people who might want to run or manage a gym I'm hoping to move to Florida by the end of this year, so I'm going to open up a new gym down there as well. But wherever you are, I'm looking to open these gyms throughout the country, and I would love to get kids in a gym learning how to be ninjas. So, yeah, just send me an email, uh, ninja dd at com, and let's open some, some academies.
0: Awesome, Drew. Well, thanks for coming on to the podcast. Uh, we definitely appreciate it over here.
1: Yeah, no thank problem, you. Chris. Thank you so much. I can't wait to go back and listen to this. Thanks, Alex. Thank you,
2: Chris. It was nice talking to you guys. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, for sure. And that was Drew Dreschel. Such a great interview. I can't wait to go back and listen to that like three or four times.
0: I know. I feel like he had some really great insight into training, training versus playing, and kind of like the mindset of being a ninja. I I think it's going to be a really great podcast for people to listen to that want to get involved.
1: Exactly. And as somebody who's trying to take his training more seriously, that's a lot of great advice that I'm really going to take to heart.
0: So speaking of taking training seriously, we have one of the most serious international competitors. I feel like nobody takes Ninja more seriously than Perry Osterly, and he's going to be on the show next week.
1: Exactly. He's been all over the world, America, Japan, lots of different countries in Europe. he If you ever want to know anything about Ninja or Sasuke, Perry Osterly your guy.
0: Yeah, he's the dude, and I'm excited to hear what he has to say uh, next week. So
1: remember, guys, you know, tune back in, hit that like button, hit the subscribe button, come back to our uh, website and check it out. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We're at National Ninja League, both places. And we have the NationalNinja.com website where you can sign our waiver and come compete for yourself.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks for tuning in, everybody. We'll see you next time.